Welcome to Sunday Morning. I'm Claire Bidwell-Smith, a therapist specializing in grief and the author of three books about grief and loss. In today's episode, I want to talk about the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Everyone's heard of them, and everyone's gone through them at some point or another with something in their lives, but they're actually a little bit more complex and nuanced and interesting than you might think. I've been fascinated with them for a long time. After my mother died, it felt like the five stages were constantly in my face. And I couldn't help but pay attention because I really, you know, yearned for some kind of framework with which I could understand my grief process. Initially, I assumed that the five stages would be this perfect formula and that if I just followed them, I would get through my grief. But it didn't exactly work that way. And I later realized that the stages were never meant to work that way. Let me backtrack a little. The five stages of grief were coined by a Swedish doctor named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 1969. She was working at a hospital in Chicago as a physician, and she became really interested in the experience that dying patients were going through. She felt like the medical personnel weren't really paying attention to the actual experience of the dying people, and she went as far as to start bringing patients on stage in the hospital auditorium and interviewing them about their experience just to give other doctors and physicians and medical staff an an insight into what they were going through in order to try to provide better care for them. This was kind of revolutionary at the time. People weren't really paying attention to the patient's experience. And so what she was doing was a little bit controversial, but also really welcomed by some people. During that time, she came up with these five stages, and they really work well for dying people. Denial, obviously, that you are, you know, have been diagnosed with some kind of terminal illness. You are in a state of shock. You can't believe it. You, you want, you know, you want to make sure that that's really true. You question the doctors, all kinds of things. Eventually, you get angry about it. That one makes a lot of sense for when you're dying. Bargaining, you start bargaining with yourself, with your doctors, with your higher power. If you just save me, I'll be a better person. I'll quit smoking. I'll stop swearing. I'll, you know, follow my life goals if I just get this chance to live. Eventually, depression sets in. You get really depressed about the fact that you're going to die. And then you kind of move through that into an acceptance phase. So, those are the five stages that she coined for dying patients, not people who were grieving, people who were dying. These stages were so popular and so well-regarded that they were then applied to the grief process and to people who were grieving. But the thing is, is that they don't actually work as well for someone who's grieving. First of all, the grief process isn't as linear as the stages suggest. It's much more fluid and dynamic. You can come in and out of stages. You can linger in one longer than another. You can skip one or circle back to one. But as a grief therapist, one of the first things that so many of my clients ask about is the stages. There's so much confusion around them. My clients always assume that they're doing something wrong. They come in and they say, I think I'm stuck in one, or I think I skipped one, or I think I'm doing two of them at once, or I don't understand the bargaining stage, or is it possible to never feel angry? Is it possible to still be in denial a year later? So many questions about it. And they also have that same hope that I once had. That if they could just figure out the five stages and follow them, then they would be cured of their grief. I tell them what I'm going to tell you. First, there's no right way to grieve. There just isn't. It's different for every single person, and there's no perfect way to do it. Next, 
I walk my clients through the five stages, which is what I want to do in today's episode. And I want to really look at them in the way that they apply to the grief process and talk about what works and what doesn't work and how they may um, look using them and looking at them and thinking about them will help you with your grief process. So let's start with denial. This one makes sense. You've just lost a loved one and denial is so often the first thing that comes. Often it's in the form of shock. Sometimes we're less aware that we're less in denial that the person has died. We can recognize that, but we're in absolute shock. You might feel really numb. Your brain just isn't completely able to process the entire thing. You might feel spacey or like the world feels very surreal. You feel like you're not quite in it. You're watching it from above or something. Um, If you've never experienced death before, or even if you have, it's just so impossible to suddenly accept that this person is gone, especially if there's someone that you saw every day in your life or talk to frequently. You may not believe that the event is real. There, There can be a very real denial of it, but often a lot of the denial stage is shock. But this whole stage helps us survive the initial impact of the loss. It's too much for our brains and our hearts to comprehend all at once, so This stage is really the phase where we're kind of insulated and cocooned in the state of shock. For me, I know that when my mother died, I, it was just utterly unlike anything I had imagined it would be. And I felt really numb for a long time. I didn't cry. I didn't cry when I found out she, she was gone. I didn't cry for almost a year. And then I cried a lot, but it took a long time for it to really sink in for me. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, this person that I had known for so long, who had been part of the person I had known better than anyone my whole life, who I'd spent more time with than anyone in my whole life was gone. And it really took me a long time to kind of come around to comprehending it on a pretty basic level. The next stage is anger. And this one's interesting to me. Anger's really powerful. It's always easier to feel angry than it is to feel sad. So I see a lot of my clients really angry in the initial stages of their grief process. They're really mad at all kinds of things. They're mad at the hospital. They're mad at a particular doctor. They're mad at a nurse. They're mad at their father-in-law. They're mad at their you know, brother who didn't bring something back at the right time. They're so angry at themselves for making this mistake or that mistake or choosing to do this instead of that. They're angry at their loved one for leaving. There's lots and lots of anger that can come. And it can come in these different ways, right? So people initially think when you hear the anger stage that you should be angry at your loved one or at somebody, but the anger can kind of be inexplicable. I've had clients tell me stories of just having this simmering anger underneath the surface and nowhere to direct it. So they blow up at like the UPS guy who comes to the door or a car that cuts them off on the road. Um, Again, this anger really masks the pain that's underneath. Every time I ever see somebody angry, I just assume that they're in pain over something. It's it's a huge mask for not wanting to feel vulnerable, not wanting to really allow the sadness in. Anger is just much easier, and it, it's like it feels like an action emotion. Um, sadness is heavier and harder and scarier sometimes, and more vulnerable. So the anger comes much quicker in the beginning. For me, I was mostly angry at myself. When my mother died, I had a million reasons to be angry, as I've talked about here and there on this podcast, sometimes um, really just focusing my anger on not having shown up that night that she died. Sometimes it was about 
wishing I had been a better daughter or wishing I'd understood um, that she was really going to die. I was angry at her here and there. I did go through some phases feeling angry at my mom, which was hard, you know, because she was gone and I missed her so much. It always makes me choke up just to think about. But I was angry with her, you know. I was angry that she didn't talk to me more about it, that we didn't get to say goodbye. I felt like she could have done a better job with that. There were even times when I was angry at her for having cancer. I felt like she could have tried harder. And that was a terrible, terrible, deep feeling, that like a secret thing that I didn't know how to admit. And I see a lot of people feel those kinds of things. You know, you've when someone like a mom or a, a really close loved one leaves you, you feel abandoned and there can absolutely be anger at them. And this is where I've talked about in other episodes about, you know, how helpful it can be to write out some of these feelings, to write letters to your loved one, to really process some of it and move through it so that you're not carrying this around. But the main thing to know is that this kind of anger is really normal and it dissipates as you kind of grow more comfortable with the loss and as you allow yourself to be more sad, the anger does dissipate. But it's really normal in the beginning to have it. And the best thing to do if you're having sudden outbursts of it or kind of inexplicable anger is to write about it, write it down. Also physical exercise is great, talking to someone about it. The next stage is bargaining and This is the most confusing one because this is the one that really doesn't apply to the grieving process. This one, when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote it, really applied well to the dying process, right? You've gotten a terminal diagnosis, you know you're going to die, and you just start bargaining with anything you can. You know, you bargain with God, you bargain with the doctors, you bargain with yourself, you make these desperate promises that if you don't die, you will do A, B, and C, you will fix this or that. Um, But when you're grieving, it's not quite the same, you know? We can't really rationalize trying to bargain to get our person back. Sometimes we do, and this can kind of come in the form of magical thinking where we start to imagine if we, what I see most commonly, I was just talking to a client about this this week, so often after we lose a loved one, in the first year or so, we go back over and over and over the events leading up to the death all over the decisions that we made, the different doctors, the very last days, the medications, the hospitals, the nurse that came, trying to figure out if there was something we could have done differently. And this is kind of where I think the bargaining stage comes in, but bargaining isn't the right word for it. I call it magical thinking. And so we go over and over and over these things, and our brain is just trying to make it make sense and trying to make it have a different outcome. I don't know if any of you out there have ever experienced this, just kind of like feeling this uncontrollable urge to keep going over and over and over the last days, trying to make sense of it, trying to go over every little detail. This is where I think the bargaining stage really comes in. For me, I also had another experience with bargaining, kind of, where after my mother died, I kept getting tricked by this thing that would happen where I would... I'd be working really hard at something in my life, trying to graduate college or trying to work on a book, trying to get an internship, and I would work so hard on it, and then the thing would happen, I would get the thing, I would get into the college, or I would write this book, or I got this job, and the moment it happened, there was like part of me all of a sudden just stopped and waited, and part of me thought that if I had, if I just did something good enough, maybe she would come back. And I can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense. And it chokes me up to think about, you know, like I haven't had it happen in a long time, but 
There was a part of me that believed for a long time that if I just did something well enough, maybe she would come back. And then the moment would come, I would get the thing, and my mother wouldn't show up, and I would often cry with this realization that she was never coming back. That was kind of my experience with bargaining, and that was the best way I understood it. But really, that's the one that I think is the trickiest of all the the stages. And that's the one that people have so much confusion over because they think that they're supposed to be bargaining, one, because they have to follow this formula that you don't have to follow, and two, they don't really understand how it is they're supposed to be bargaining. So I'm here to tell you, you don't have to bargain. Um, You can if you want, but often it really just looks like a lot of magical thinking or these funny ways of trying to make a person come back in your head or your heart. So... Now I'm going to talk about the stage of anxiety. This is not in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages, but I've added it in. In fact, my new book that's coming out next year that I just finished writing is called Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. I really feel like this is the one that got left out. This is the one that could replace bargaining, perhaps. Um, this This is the stage and the symptom that I see most commonly with all of my clients that I've been treating for the past 10 years is they come in and they are suddenly struck with some level of anxiety after a loss. And generally it's a level that they've never experienced before, whether it's panic attacks and they're ending up in the ER or they've become hypochondriac, they're thinking about themselves getting cancer or some other kind of disease. Um, or they're just having general anxiety all the time, a, a, a sense of unease, worrying, a preoccupation with things. Um, this is the thing that I see all the time in my clients. And it's not talked about very much in grief literature. And in anxiety literature, grief is not really talked about. So I put these two together and they make so much sense to me. I am, um, when I was 18, Right before my mother died, I was on a road trip with my high school boyfriend. We, w- we had just gone to see the two colleges that we were going to go off to in the fall, and we were driving back home to Atlanta. This was the summer before college, and we were driving along in his car, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, and suddenly something happened. My heart beat a little funny, and all of a sudden my breath got really tight. My chest got tight. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I sat up in the seat. I was panicking. I thought I was dying. I thought I was having a heart attack. I couldn't calm down. My heart was racing. I couldn't breathe. Everything, I got a little dizzy. I just wanted to get out of the car. I was terrified. My boyfriend drove me to an emergency room, like somewhere in Virginia, halfway home. And we stopped and I spent the entire afternoon there, excuse me, spent the entire afternoon there Um, going through a series of echocardiograms and, you know, getting hooked up to things and getting blood work drawn, all to say that I was completely healthy and normal. And now I know what I'd had was a classic panic attack. However, the doctors never once offered that up as an explanation for me. This was 20 years ago, so it was a little bit different then. And I think that anxiety and panic attacks are a little bit more widely recognized in the medical field. But that's what happened, and the panic attacks and the anxiety continued. They started about six months before my mother died, and they continued far after, and it was all tied to my mother's death. It took me a long time to understand that. It took me a long time to learn how to grapple with my own anxiety and learn how to manage it. It's something that still flares up for me now and then, even though I know an enormous amount about it. But I've really learned how to work with it, how to not let it affect my life. 
Um, I understand so much more about it now. But when, the thing that I really understand is that it was born out of grief, and it was born out of loss, and it was born out of the realization that terrible things can happen, and that some of the most important people in our lives can disappear from them. And that feeling of vulnerability, of existentialism, of mortality brought on all of my anxiety. And that is what happens with all of my clients who come in. I have so many clients who recently lost a very significant loved one in the last six months, a parent, a sibling, a child, a spouse, and they've never had anxiety before and suddenly they are paralyzed with it. They're also ending up in the ER with panic attacks. They're going to their doctors to have copious tests to see if they also have cancer. They are having general anxiety about everything under the sun. Um, and all of it is stemming from this loss. So that is the stage that I put in here. And I added in either I'd like to replace bargaining with it altogether, or I would put it after bargaining and before depression. The good news about that one is that I really do believe it's treatable. It's an intense stage, the anxiety. And for some people, there's always a little bit of it simmering throughout their lives after losing someone we love. And there are so many ways to work with it. And I'm really excited to put this book out next year and talk more about it in a big way. But for now, I just want to include it in these stages because it's not included and it's one that people feel like they're going crazy over. Um, They can't believe they have it. They don't understand how it's tied to their loss or they think it might be but they want more information about it and so that's been my work of the last couple of years is that but continuing with the classic five stages depression is the next one in Kubler-Ross's stages and um, that one's really normal depression sets in when we really start to realize that this has happened I think the depression usually comes in around the four to eight month between the four, between four and eight months after a big loss. It's now been the longest you've gone without that person. Generally, it's the longest you've gone without talking to them or seeing them. You've had enough time to really let the loss sink in and to know that they aren't coming back, and that you have a whole different life ahead of you now that they're gone. You've had enough time now to really start to re-envision your life and like realize you're not going to walk down the aisle with your dad or that your mom's never going to meet your grand, your babies and be a grandmother or that your husband's never going to see you know, your son grow up together um, or that your sibling isn't you know, going to be there at some other significant life moment. And that realization can just feel so heavy. You know, you just suddenly are looking at your life and you're like, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the plan. This was not how it was supposed to go. And it just feels pretty hard and heavy. And like I said, you're just really missing that person. It's been a long time since you spent time with them. So depression can look like a lot of things. It can be mild. It can just be a pervasive heaviness that follows you through your days. It can be deeper and stronger than that. Um, it's normal to feel a really pretty significant level of depression during your grief process. I had a client the other day tell me that he had spent most of the day in bed crying um, and, you know, only got up before his son got home from school and like, you know, got dressed and started to get on with his day. And, 
and he felt terrible and I and I I told him that's totally normal his wife only died recently and of course he's spending all day in bed crying and it's uncomfortable for all of us to do that especially high functioning people who've been going about our lives all this time you know just doing the normal things that we're supposed to do and suddenly now we're crying in bed all day we don't want to go places we don't want to talk to people we don't want to do all the things we once did we just want to watch Netflix and stay in bed all day it's normal it's not normal if it's going on you know a year two years after the loss or if it's really taken over your life and you are unable to do anything else but if that depression is here with you now and you are spending portions of your day in bed or you aren't wanting to go out as much or see people as much it's totally normal it does pass but letting yourself steep in that sadness is part of the grief process it's part of the mourning and when we push it away when we try to deny ourselves this period of heaviness it only seems to fester in other things sometimes that's what causes anxiety that we're not letting ourselves feel that heavy sadness and so we push it down and then it just manifests in other ways anger or anxiety but it does pass if you feel like you're in that stage and you're not sure how to move through it you know definitely seek help talk to a therapist um, push yourself to get into routines to exercise more ask some friends for help tell your family that you need help find things that help give yourself give your life meaning start volunteering somewhere that for me was one of the most um, profound ways that I moved through mine my depression really settled in in the probably about six eight month mark after my dad died and I suddenly did not want to get out of bed I was living with a boyfriend at the time and he would get up in the morning and go to work and I would get up too and I would drink coffee and I would try to act like everything was fine and I was going to work on my book that day and the second that he was out the door to work I would crawl back in bed and I would just cry and cry and I would wish that I could fall asleep and I couldn't fall asleep because I had just slept for nine hours and I would just cry and cry and cry and I would stay there on and off most of the day sometimes I would read books or watch tv but mostly that was all I did and then before my boyfriend got home I would get up and get dressed and you know pretend like I had been doing something all day it was miserable it was really awful it just felt so heavy and it felt like it felt like it was never going to end like that was my fear was that I was always going to feel that way and I see that in a lot of people who are experiencing depression that they worry that they're always going to feel depressed but you won't you do move through it and for me one of the things that finally got me out of it was I started volunteering um, for a nonprofit that worked with with kids and and I would go and I would drag myself out of bed to meet these like afternoon tutoring sessions with these kids at this center down the street and it was hard to get up and get there but once I got there I felt so much better and it felt so good to be doing something that wasn't about me and to be doing something that was helpful for the world or for other people especially people who didn't have as many resources as I did and I remember one day walking home from the center and realizing that the depression had lifted a little bit like I could just noticeably feel it I just didn't feel as hopeless as I had so finding things like that to do can really help but I think also always asking for help depression is a tricky one to get out of sometimes so if you feel stuck in it I would definitely seek help the last stage is acceptance this is an interesting stage because again there's some confusion about what acceptance means it does not mean you're over the loss it does not mean that you're okay with what happened 
you may never be over your loss. You may never think it's okay that your person died. And nor should you. What this stage is about is simply accepting the reality that your loved one is really gone and accepting that this new reality is permanent. This stage is about learning to live with your loss. It's about softening and healing and finding ways to make your life meaningful again. It doesn't mean that you have to let go of your person. It doesn't mean you have to get over them. Acceptance just means that you're now fully aware that your life has changed and that you will continue to live your life without them. I think this is also the stage in which you begin to kind of cultivate a new relationship with your loved one, which I've talked about in the last couple of episodes. You learn how to connect with the internalized version of them that live within you. You continue to love them and think of them and even include them in your days in all sorts of ways. That's a big part of the acceptance stage. And I feel like for me, acceptance has come over and over and over. It's um, it's come at different times. It's come multiple times. There have been multiple times when I've felt a new level of acceptance about my losses, a new level of acceptance at living a life without my parents. Um, and that's, you know, to wrap up about these five stages, I think that that is what's interesting about them is that so many people think they're supposed to be, like I said, this perfect formula that you move through them one after the other in the same amount of time. You devote the same amount of time. You feel the same intensity with each one. And that's just not the case. Um, You may never experience some of them. You may return to some of them more than once. You may experience several of them at the same time. Um, You may have all kinds of different anger while at the same time being depressed. You may, um, like like I said, come to different levels of acceptance over and over and over. Um, You may find yourself in denial, again, at later points in life for no reason at all. You may skip some. Um, But the point is that the five stages are really just guideposts for for you to use as you move through your own individual process. Grief can be so much more intense than people anticipate. You can literally feel like you're going crazy when you're grieving. You wonder if anyone has ever felt all the things you're feeling, or if you will ever feel normal again. Understanding these stages can help anchor you and give you a sense of normalcy within your intense emotions. Ultimately, I think that they're just a great reminder that you're not alone in everything you're feeling and experiencing. Like there are five famous stages of grief because we so commonly experience these things, these emotions, these symptoms, these feelings, these fears, these anxiety, this anger. So many of us, everyone who grieves goes through them in some fashion or another. So knowing that they're there and being able to look at them can make you feel a little less alone and a little less like you're going crazy when you're grieving. I want to talk in future episodes about other models of grief because there's been a lot more that have come out in the last 30 years um, after Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, but hers are still the most prevalent and still the ones that people cling to no matter what. They've all heard of them, they come back to them over and over, and then they get confused about them. So I wanted to really kind of lay them out here and talk about them in the way that I did. And in later episodes, I'll go into a few other models of grief that I think are really interesting and helpful to the process. Thank you for listening today. If you have any questions about the five stages or about your grief process, don't hesitate to send me a note. I really love this work. I love talking about this stuff. I love thinking about it. I love helping people navigate their own grief processes. You can find me online at clairebidwellsmith.com. And if you like today's episode, please subscribe regularly on iTunes. And also please pass this along to anyone you know who might be grieving. 
even sometimes when we don't know what to say to someone who's grieving, it's so nice to just feel like someone's thinking about us by giving us a book or something to listen to or, you know, to watch a movie or something that they think might help us. I'll be back here again next Sunday morning, and I hope you will be too.